Saturated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca, and this is the final episode of season three. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a time. It's been a time. <laughs> it's been a very interesting season. It has. I really enjoyed this season, though. So have I. It's been so novel to actually have a, have a plan. <laughs> I, th- I feel like we're really getting the hang of this shit now. Yeah, because season two is very much like a... Is this going to work? Yeah. And I feel like this season we got into a bit of a... A groove. A groove, yes. Yeah. I agree. I've enjoyed it. I hope everyone <laughs> listening has, but, yeah. you know, it's not really about you. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe that you had an addendum. Yeah. So we did our five favourite films episode, and I said in the episode, I'm sure that I've missed something. Mm-hmm. And I've remembered what the films that I've missed are. So I'm just going to say them very quickly. So, first one, Stardust. Oh yeah, you love Stardust. How did I forget Stardust? That's like my ultimate comfort film. Yeah, like I've comfort watched that with you. Yeah. Multiple times. Yeah, Stardust is one of my favourite books. And like, I like the adaptation. It's like a more family friendly version but not in a bad way like it's just a wholesome film it's very whimsical and I can't believe I forgot it and the second one which is absolutely a top five favorite film and I can't believe I blanked on it which is stuck in love oh yeah again I feel that you've made me watch that multiple times yeah it's a film about like a family of writers and they're very different like romantic lives and how they all weave together and I'll have to talk about it at some point because I'm kicking myself for leaving it out because I love how clever it is but anyway I just wanted to to shout those out because I I feel bad for leaving (laughs) just starting off the season finale being like by the way Uh, but yeah, should we... Do you want to talk about our highlights of the season? Or do you have something? Well, I have something that okay. I want to, to add before we really get yes. started with the episode. Because I realise that by the time this comes out, I will not have talked about Red Taylor's version mm. on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to tell you all that I am okay. <laughs> um, I've, I've not missed it. Don't you worry. <laughs> um... I simply have too many things to say and I'm, I haven't processed them yet. Yeah. But obviously I love it. Obviously I got the signed CD. Obviously All Too Well 10 Minute Version has my whole heart. Can't believe she originally cut the lines You kept me like a secret but I kept you like an oath. Ooh. Let's talk about that another day. Mm. So yeah, if anyone wants to chat about this most blessed release, please do message me. Yeah. Because I am infatuated with it. I just do not have the... I'm I'm still I'm still in it. I'm still in it. Yeah. And we're recording this like a month in advance, which is why you have not talked about it. Yeah. Um <laughs> but I have yeah, I've just it's it's blown my tiny mind and I haven't processed my thoughts yet. What's your yeah. highlight of the season? <laughs> yeah, my highlight of the season was our deep dive into the Starless Sea. Ah not just because it's my favourite book and I got to talk about it again and got to talk about it with you because you also enjoyed it, which is good. <laughs> um, but also I thought it was just really fun to like geek out over a book in so much detail. Mm. Like I really liked that we got the opportunity to point out stuff that we wouldn't normally point out on the podcast because we like to keep things spoiler free. 
So, like, I don't know how this would happen again because I feel like the Star of the Sea was quite a special circumstance. But I think it would be fun to do something similar again one day if we ever find a book that captures both of our imaginations. Yeah, like a little again. book club episode. Yeah. That would be cute. Because I thought it was quite fun. I don't know what anyone else thought, but... <laughs> again, it's not for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's for us. Yeah. No, I I agree. I think it was really fun and I would like to... I agree it was a special circumstance because obviously you'd talked about it before and mm. then we wouldn't normally go back to a book, but mm-hmm. because it's such a special book then we had to. Yeah. But yeah, I loved talking. I loved getting like into the nitty gritty mm-hmm. of of all of the good things. Yeah, so. definitely. Yeah, nice. Nice. What was your highlight? I took a much shallower highlight, but <laughs> um, it was you quizzing me on Cassie Clare. Oh, that was funny. I just like I just thought it was really fun. <laughs> um, I haven't laughed that hard in a long time. Yeah, I did enjoy that as well. I genuinely like my brain was doing so much work when you were quizzing. I was going through so much deduction. <laughs> I was like, wow, I feel really switched on. Yeah. I'm glad, because there was a slight worry when I was writing that, that I was like, oh, she's not going to like this idea. <laughs> no, I kind of loved it. I, wa- I kind of want to steal it and like... Quiz me on quiz, something. Yeah, quiz you yeah. on something, but I don't know what it would be, but I'd find something. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm up for that. Thanks. <laughs> So, without further ado, for the last time this season, Mm. what are you infatuated with? I am infatuated with Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. Mmm, it is pretty. It is. So this came out in 2018 and is a stunning book inspired by Slavic folklore. Mm. So it mostly draws on the Rumpelstiltskin tale, um, which I believe does have German origins. But it does also draw on other like Polish or just general Slavic fairy tales or legends. And it has quite a few different points of view and I'll be showing a selection of them today. But it primarily follows three female characters, Mariam, Wanda and Irina, in this like medieval Eastern European country called Lithvis. And this is where once again do my disclaimer that I'm probably going to pronounce things wrong. My manager at work is actually Polish and I regret (laughs) not asking her for like a pronunciation guide but we're just going to roll with it. Cool. As per. Okay so fair warning I have a lot of quotes today (laughs) because what I love about this book is the tone. Even though there's lots of narrators with different personalities the overall tone is of a fairy tale which you guys know that I like. Yes. And so I find that I have like less analysis today and instead I just want to read out passages where I think the character examination and the world building is amazing. Sweet. So as I said this is a book that has a bunch of different stories that all end up tied together by the end which again we all know I like <laughs> um, but I'd say the main crux of the plot or at least the story which kicks off all the other stories is Mariam's. And I actually thought I would read out the first couple pages of the book from her perspective and then I'll explain how the plot develops. Okay. So the first couple pages introduces us to a few things. You've got the tone, which again I'll talk about more after. You've got the like interesting twist that Novik has taken from the folklore 
and you've got the quick establishing of setting. You can tell that you've been doing your PhD work. <laughs> can you? <laughs> yeah. The English student's really jumping out today. I like it. Come on. Come. <laughs> the real story isn't half as pretty as the one you've heard. The real story is the miller's daughter with her long golden hair wants to catch a lord, a prince, a rich man's son. So she goes to the money lender and borrows for a ring and a necklace and decks herself out for the festival. And she's beautiful enough, so the lord, the prince, the rich man's son notices her and dances with her and tumbles her in a quiet hayloft when the dancing is over and afterwards he goes home and marries the rich woman his family has picked out for him. Then the miller's despoiled daughter tells everyone that the money lender is in league with the devil and the village runs him out or maybe even stones him, so at least she gets to keep the jewels for a dowry and the blacksmith marries her before that firstborn child comes along a little early. Because that's what the story's really about, getting out of paying your debts. That's not how they tell it, but I knew. My father was a money lender, you see. He wasn't very good at it. If someone didn't pay him back on time, he never so much as mentioned it to them. Only if our cupboards were really bare or our shoes were falling off our feet and my mother spoke quietly with him after I was in bed. Then he'd go, unhappy, and knock on a few doors and make it sound like an apology when he asked for some of what they owed. And if there was money in the house and someone asked to borrow, he hated to say no, even if we didn't really have enough ourselves. So all his money, most of which had been my mother's money, her dowry, stayed in other people's houses. And everyone else liked it that way, even though they knew they ought to be ashamed of themselves. So they told the story often, even or especially when I could hear it. My mother's father was a money lender too, but he was a very good one. He lived in Visnia, 40 miles away by the pitiful trading road that dragged from village to village like a string full of small dirty knots. Mama often took me on visits when she could afford a few pennies to pay someone to let us ride along at the back of a peddler's cart or a sledge, five or six changes along the way. Sometimes we caught glimpses of the other road through the trees, the one that belonged to the Stark, gleaming like the top of a river in winter when the snow had blown clear. Don't lick, Mariam, my mother would tell me, but I always kept watching it out of the corner of my eye, hoping to keep it near, because it meant a quicker journey. Whoever was driving the cart would slap the horses and hurry them up until it vanished again. One time, we heard the hooves behind us as they came off their road, a sound like ice cracking, and the driver beat the horses quick to get the cart behind a tree, and we all huddled there in the well of the wagon among the sacks, my mother's arm wrapped around my head, holding it down so I couldn't be tempted to take a look. They rode past us and did not stop. It was a poor peddler's cart, covered in dull tin pots, and staric knights only ever came riding for gold. The hooves went jangling past, and a knife wind blew over us, so when I sat up the ends of my thin braid was frosted white, and all of my mother's sleeve were wrapped around me, and our backs. But the frost faded, and as soon as it was gone, the peddler said to my mother, Well, that's enough of a rest, isn't it? As if he didn't remember why we had stopped. Yes, my mother said, nodding, as if she didn't remember either, and he got back up onto the driver's seat and clucked to the horses and set us going again. I was young enough to remember it afterwards a little, and not old enough to care about the staric as much as about the ordinary cold biting through my clothes and my pinched stomach. 
I didn't want to say anything that might make the cart stop again, impatient to get to the city and my grandfather's house. There's a lot going on there. There is a lot going on there, and that was basically just two pages. <laughs> Jeez. So, yeah, uh, as you can see, the tone is still very reminiscent of a fairy tale or folklore language. There's a lot of like repetition mm. in it. But there is a, what I'd say is quite like a sassy, like slightly humorous edge to it, which does appeal more to like a modern reader. Mm-hmm. So basically, Marion becomes the money lender in their household instead. She gets sick of her dad being pitiful at it and takes over. And one night, she brags to her mother about how she can turn silver into gold. So to us, that's just her bragging, and you know that she means she's earned enough silver coins to exchange it for for gold gold coins. But this is overheard by the Staric on this road, who come to her with their silver and tell her to turn it to gold. And so kicks off our Rumpelstiltskin inspired plot. That's so clever. I know. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It's so, like Shylock and Rumpelstiltskin put together. I, yeah, basically. So yeah, just a quick reminder, I'm not going to explain the entire Rumpelstiltskin story because I assume most people know it. Um, but the most like infamous elements of it, the elements that matter here, are he spins straw into gold. And he tries to get people to guess his very hard to guess name in three tries. So spinning gold names in threes are all important details in mm. spinning silver, which I again I just think is very clever. It's a really good title. It's a really good title. It's yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to come back to the Staric, which again I found multiple pronunciations of. So Staric is one. That's how I was reading it in my head anyway. So that's what I'm sticking with. But I saw Strike quite a bit as well. But anyway. So before I come back to Staric, I want to switch narrator for a bit. Because I want to show off the different narrators. So we're going to look at Wanda. So Wanda is employed by Mariam's family. She helps her in the house with cleaning and like the animals. But Mariam soon trains her up to collect the money they're owed. And... I love her because she's introduced as quite like a simple girl but her life in their employment is much better than her home life so she really like flourishes and becomes a much more like confident person. So this is my first quote from the perspective of Wanda which tells us a bit more about Mariam too. I didn't mind going to strangers houses and knocking and asking them for money. It wasn't me asking, it was Mariam and it was her money and she was going to give some of it to me. Standing on their stoops, I could see inside handsome furniture, warm fires. No one in their houses coughed. I am here for the money lender, I said, and told them how much they owed, and I did not say anything when they tried to tell me the number was wrong. At a few houses, someone said they couldn't pay, and I told them they needed to go speak to her at her house if they did not want her to send it to the law. Then they gave me something after all, so they had been lying. I minded even less then. I carried a big sturdy basket and I put inside it everything they gave me. Marion was worried I would forget who gave what, but I didn't forget. I remembered every coin and all the different goods. She wrote it all down in her big black book, the thick goose feather pen scratching surely in her hand without a pause. On market day she would sort out any goods she did not want to keep and I would follow her with the basket into town. 
She sold and traded until the basket was empty and the purse she carried full, turning cloth and fruit and buttons into coins. Sometimes she took another step first. If a farmer had given her ten skins of wool, she would take them to a weaver in her debt and have her work off a payment in making it into a cloak, and then she would sell the cloak in the market. And at the end of the day, she would pour out a lake of pennies on the floor and roll them in paper to turn them into silver. One roll of pennies, the length of my ring finger, was the same as a kopeck. I knew because when she took that roll into the market the next time, very early in the morning, she would find a merchant who had travelled in from out of town, still putting up his stand, and she would give him that roll, and he would open it and count the pennies, and then he would give her one silver kopeck back. The silver coins she did not spend or change in the market. She brought them home and rolled them in paper also, and a roll as long as my little finger, that was the same as a coin of gold. She put them away into the leather purse her grandfather had given her. I never saw that purse except on market days, and on market days it was out on the table when I came, and it stayed there until after I had gone for the day. She did not hide it or take it out where I could see, and her father and her mother never touched it. I didn't understand how she guessed how much each thing would be worth to someone else when she didn't care to keep them herself. But little by little I learned to read the numbers she wrote down in her book when she valued the payments, and when I overheard the prices she got in the market, the two were nearly the same, every time. I wanted to understand how she did it, but I didn't ask. I knew she only thought of me as a horse or an ox, something dull and silent and strong. I felt so around her and her family. They talked all the day, it seemed to me, talked or sang or even argued, but there was never shouting or raised hands. They were always touching one another. Her mother would put a hand on Mariam's cheek or her father would kiss her on the head whenever she passed nearby. Sometimes when I left their house at the end of the day, once I was down the road and into the fields and out of sight, I would put my hand on the back of my head, my hand that had grown big and heavy and strong and I tried to remember the feeling of my own mother's hand. Oh, that's sad. I know. I don't really have much to say about it. I just like it. <laughs> it reminds me of Little. Yeah, it has that same kind of tone, actually. Yeah. Mm. So I have another quote um, from her perspective, and it's about magic. Ooh. Kind of. You'll see what I mean. That morning after she came back, Mariam said to me, Wanda, we would like to have a young man staying here at night to help look after the house and to take care of some goats we are going to get. Would your brother be able to come and help us? I didn't answer her right away. I wanted to say no. I had kept her books all those two weeks while she was away. Me, alone. Every day I went on my rounds, every day to a different set of houses, and then I came back to the house and set dinner to cook for me and her father, the moneylender, and I sat down at the table, and with my hands trembling a little, I carefully opened the book. The leather was so soft beneath my hands, and inside, every thin, fine page was covered with letters and numbers. I turned them one after another to find the houses I had visited that day. She had a different number on the page for each house, and next to it, the name of the person who lived there. I dipped my pen, and wiped the nib, and dipped it again, and I wrote very slowly and shaped every number as well as I could. And then I closed the book up again and cleaned the pen and put it in the ink away on the shelf. I did all that by myself. All that summer, when the days were long and I could linger a little, 
Mariam had taught me how to write the numbers with a pen. She would take me outside after dinner and shape them in the dirt with a stick, over and over. But she didn't only teach me how to put them down, she taught me how to make them. One new number growing out of two, and how to take one number away from another also. Not just little numbers that I could make on my hands or by counting stones, but big numbers. She taught me how to make a hundred pennies into a kopeck, and twenty silver kopecks into a golden zlotek, and how to break a piece of silver back into pennies again. I was afraid at first when she began. It was five days before I picked up the stick and traced the line she had drawn. She spoke as if it was ordinary, but I knew she was teaching me magic. I was still afraid afterwards, but I couldn't help myself. I learned to draw the magic shapes in the dirt, and then with an old worn-out pen and ash mixed with water on a smooth, flat rock, and finally with her own pen and ink on an old piece of paper, marked up to grey from all the writing that had been done and bleached away. And by the end of the winter, when she went away visiting, I could keep the books for her. I was even starting to be able to read the letters. I knew the names out loud and on each page I would say them softly to myself and touch the letters with my finger and I could see which letters made each sound. Sometimes when I was wrong, Marion would stop me and tell me the right one. That was how much magic she had given me and I didn't want to share. Oh no. <laughs> how sweet. Why is it the passages about learning how to read that... I know. And obviously do maths. Mm-hmm. I like the maths as the magic in this book. That's pretty cool. I know. I know. <laughs> it's so clever. Um, and yeah, I just love how Wanda thinks of Mariam as magic, even though she's just entrepreneurial and can do maths. <laughs> like, oh, I just love it so much. So, I mean, people that are good at maths are pretty magic. <laughs> yeah, that is true, actually. So yeah, let's switch it up a bit and look at a sort of villain who is also sort of the comic relief. <laughs> so I'm not going to explain the intricacies of this plot too much, but essentially the character Myrnatius, the Tsar, is inhabited by Chernobog, who is a Slavic demon, um, or I think it's like the god of evil. Okay. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, it's like a fire demon. His new wife, Nazarina, Irina, has worked this out, and she has staric magic. So they're very opposed people. You've got like an ice person and a fire person. Right. And for the context of this passage, she's also explained to him that her mother, before her mother died, blessed her when she was born. So Irina says to Myrnatius, my mother had enough magic to give me three blessings before she died. The first was wit, the second beauty, and the third that fools should recognise neither. (laughs) And this passage is the Tsar having a bit of a hissy fit over the arranged marriage. (laughs) I am so on board. Oh, I love it so much. Okay. My darling Zarina vanished again after dinner, somewhere between the kitchens and my bedchamber. I was hardly surprised by now. I didn't object, either. After several unbroken years of lecturing me on the importance of choosing my bride and all the many tedious factors to consider, all the old dotards in my council had fallen over one another to congratulate me for having shackled myself to a girl with none of the dowry or political value they'd been insisting on, which was irritating enough. 
but all the young dotards in my court had also fallen over one another to congratulate me on the astonishing beauty of my pale mousy rake of a bride. Even my most reliable cynic, Lord Reynolds, on whom I'd have confidently wagered a thousand pieces of gold to find something viciously insulting to say about any new wife I'd presented, in his magnificently polite way, naturally, wandered up to my throne late in the evening and told me coolly that I'd made quite a clever and unexpected choice, and then he looked round the room and asked where she'd gone to, in a tone so artfully uninterested that I realised with enormous indignation that he was passionately interested in looking at her some more. <laughs> <laughs> that was like two sentences, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it was enough to make me wonder if she'd been telling the truth about that enchantment from her mother. Blinding fools to her beauty seemed rather more like a curse than a blessing, giving the number of fools among nobility. But as I'd ample cause to know, mothers weren't necessarily to be relied upon to deliver those, whatever song and story liked to say about it. Or perhaps I'd been right, and the blessing really was the other way around. Except my Aunt Felicia, who very decidedly was not a fool, I'd found her impossible to muddle without expending really enormous amounts of power, made Elias help her daughter over to me before leaving, and told me in resigned tones, well, you've married the way most men do, for a pretty face, so now make it worthwhile and see to it there's a christening before another year is gone. And this while Elias, who has been trying his best to worm his way into my bed since even before he'd worked out what he wanted to do once he'd got there, the quantities of horrible poetry he's inflicted on me don't bear describing, stood there and looked as though he wanted to burst into tears. I wanted to stand up and shout at them all that my wife not only wasn't divinely beautiful, she wasn't even interestingly ugly. Her conversation consisted entirely of insults, dire warnings and tedious lectures I couldn't even ignore, and they were all extraordinary idiots for imagining I could possibly have had the bad taste to fall in love with a dull, prosing, long-faced harridan. The only reason I didn't yield to the temptation was that I'd have been put to the awkward necessity of explaining just why I had married her. Because my demon told me to isn't a generally accepted reason, even if you have a crown on your head. And I would have raised more objections if I'd known what I was getting into. Under normal circumstances, when my friend wants itself a meal, it doesn't usually last long. I just hold my nose and dive deep until the screaming is all over, then cover things over and occasionally send a compensatory purse to the appropriate destination. I have had words with it about snatching up awkward people like noblemen and parents of small children to a little grudging effect, but that's only because it's not very picky. Unless I do something stupid like smile encouragingly at a serving maid or a well-turned footman, even in broad daylight, in which case I'm sure to find their staring corpse in my bed a few nights later. Why didn't you marry Prince Ulrich's daughter, indeed? It delights in doing that sort of thing. The added pleasure of surprising the poor fool who thinks they're about to have an evening's delight and a handsome reward in the morning. I'm dreading the night Elias finally gets really enterprising and bribes his way into my bedchamber. My aunt will not be happy in the least. As for Ulrich's daughter, if I had let my counsellor shove me into bed with her, she'd have had a great many objections afterwards if she didn't before. But not sweet innocent Irina, who evidently doesn't bat an eye at flaming horrors. In hindsight, I shouldn't have thought for an instant she'd have trouble with the court. A woman who can coolly bargain with a demon that wants to gnaw on her soul is hardly to be intimidated by Lord Reynold, or, more to the point, by her husband. 
I could already see the freshly hideous future taking shape ahead of me. I was going to be stuck with her. My blasted demon was going to snatch at her offer with both clawed hands. Aunt Felicia was going to be delighted at the chance to marry Elias off to a rich princess. My entire court already thought her enchantingly beautiful and my counsellors were really going to adore my having a wife who would listen to them prose on about tax rolls and then come and harangue me for hours in their stead since I couldn't send her away. And everyone would love her as absolutely no one did me. Oh, and five minutes from now she'd undoubtedly inform me that she expected me to consummate this relationship so she could pop out an ear or two to still more general acclaim. After which I wouldn't be the least surprised to find a knife sticking out of my back some morning. There was a gruesome inevitability to it all. My life has been a sequence of monsters one after another tossing me about to suit their whims. I've got a finely tuned sense for when another round of buffeting has arrived. <laughs> Freshly hideous future <laughs> is such a good phrase. I know. I love this because I just love how petty <laughs> And I also love the line because my demon told me to. <laughs> Sorry, can I just check though? You said originally that her three things were beauty, wit, and that a fool would recognise neither. Mm-hmm. So like everyone thinks she looks quite plain. Yeah. Everyone thinks she's very beautiful. Alright, okay. I thought the joke was that he, that she was beautiful and he didn't recognise it, so he was the fool. No. Okay. No, everyone else is the fool. I see. Yeah, and she just looks normal. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I love that. I love how petty he is. I love how blasé he is about the fact that a demon literally possesses him every night. And yeah, I just thought it would be a fun one to show, to like, show the difference in narrative style. But I still think that his, like, matter-of-fact style about magic is very effective in a fairy tale. Mm. Um, because I'm sure this is something I've mentioned before, with fairy tales or fantasy that presenting something as true without explaining it is, in my opinion, the best way to write that genre. Yeah, because um, it's more convincing. Yeah, and I think Novik does it really well here because it's so ridiculous, but I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're going to go back to Miriam's perspective to wrap up my thoughts, and I finally get to introduce you to the Staric King. To recap, without spoilers, Mariam was approached by a Staric to turn their silver into gold because as we've seen that's something that she can do. Mm. She gets cocky the second time she does this and demands payment. So she's told that once she does it a third time she'll be betrothed to the Staric King because that's the only gift in return that would be worthy of right. this feat. She doesn't really want to be married to the Staric King <laughs> but understands that she'll get killed if she doesn't do it because mm. um, that's the kind of people that they are. So she does. And this scene is him showing up to collect his gold for the third time. That's not a spoiler, by the way. So yeah, Mariam is at a family wedding. Oh yeah, that's um, like not even a chunk into the book. Nah. She's at a wedding and this happens. <laughs> <laughs> Promise us you'll be there to dance at our wedding, Mariam. It is the only gift we ask of you. I managed to smile back and said that I would. But the candles were burning down and it was not the only betrothal to be finalised that night. In the midst of their happy noise I began to hear sleigh bells ringing, too high and with a strange tone. They grew louder and louder until they were at the door, heavy stamping hooves up and down, then a thump of a fist upon the door, knocking. No one else noticed. 
They kept on talking and laughing and singing, even though their voices seemed to me muffled beneath that enormous echoing sound. I slowly left them all in the sitting room and walked down the hall. The casket full of gold was still standing in the entry, half hidden beneath the coats and wraps heaped up on the rack. We had all somehow forgotten it. I opened the door and on and outside on the white road stood an open sleigh, narrow and sleek and made of pale wood, with four of the deer-like creatures harnessed with white leather, with a driver in the seat and two footmen hanging on behind, all of them bloodless pale and tall like my Starrick, I suppose I had to think of him, although they were nothing nearly so grand. They wore their white hair in a single braid, only a few sparkling beads here and there, and their clothes were all in shades of grey. Their lord was standing on the threshold, and he had come in ceremony. He wore a crown this time, a band of gold and silver around his forehead with points that unfurled like the sharp leaves of holly, with clear jewels set in the centre of each one. He wore white leather and a white cloak trimmed in white fur, more of the clear crystals hanging from the edge like a fringe made of glass. He looked at me from his height with an angry and dissatisfied air, his mouth turned down, although he didn't like what he saw. What was there for him to like? I was wearing my own best dress, my sleeves embroidered around the wrists in red and my skirt in the same colour, my wool vest and apron patterned in orange, but none of it was extravagant. The clothes of a merchant's daughter. Nothing more. Even the small gold buttons on my vest and the collar of black fur only the mark of a little prosperity. Small and dark and wren-coloured, and entirely absurd as a wife for him, I blurted before he even spoke. You can't want to marry me. What will anyone think? His mouth grew even more displeased and his eyes knived. What I have promised I will do, he hissed at me, though all the world will end for it. Have you my silver changed for gold? He didn't even sound malicious this time, as though he'd given up hope of my failing. I bent down and seized the lid of the casket and threw it open where it stood amid the coats and woolen wraps. I could not even have pushed it to his feet by myself. There, I said, take it and leave me alone. It's only nonsense to marry me when you don't want to, and I don't want to. Why didn't you just promise me a trifle? Only a mortal could speak so of offering false coin and returning little for much, he said, contempt dripping, and I glared at him, glad to be angry instead of afraid. My account books are clean, I said, and I don't call it a reward to be dragged from my home and my family. Reward, the Starrick said. Who are you to me that I should reward you? You are the one who demanded fair return for a proven gift of high magic. Did you think I would degrade myself by pretending to be one of the low, unable to match it? I am the lord of the glass mountain, not some nameless white, and I leave no debts unpaid. You are thrice proven, thrice true, no matter by what unnatural chance, he added, sounding unreasonably bitter about it. And I shall not prove false myself, whatever the cost. He held his hand out to me, and I said in desperation, I don't even know your name. He glared at me in outrage as enormous as if I had demanded he cut off his own head. My name? You think to have my name? You shall have my hand and my crown and content yourself therewith. How dare you demand still more of me? He seized my wrist, burning cold where his gloved fingers brushed me, and then he jerked me through the doorway. 
The cold faded out of me like a sunrise running across the wide river, even though I stood in that white forest with snow under my soft house boots and not even a shawl around my shoulders. I tried to get free of him. His grip was monstrously strong, but when I flung my whole weight against it, he only let me go. I tumbled into the snow and scrambled up, turning at the same time, meaning to run. But there was nowhere to go. There was only the road stretching into the white trees behind me and going on in front of me, and no sight anywhere of my grandfather's door or the city walls. Only the bone-white casket remained, standing open in front of me. In the cold light of the forest, the gold standing in it shone as though sunlight had been trapped inside every coin, and they might run like melted butter if you picked them up. The two footmen came past me and closed the lid carefully, almost reverentially. In their faces I saw the same yearning I had seen in the market, people's eyes caught by the fairy silver. They lifted the casket with equal care, but easily, though my grandfather's two stout men had only carried it with grunting effort. I turned, following it with my eyes as they carried it to the sleigh and came back round to my staric lord. He flicked a hand at me, peremptorily. What was I to do? I went to him, graceless in the deep snow, and clambered into the sleigh after him. The only comfort I had was that he held himself rigidly straight and apart from me, as much as he could without shrinking even a finger's width from the centre of the sleigh. Go, he said sharply to the driver, and with a quick shake of the harness bells we were off, down the wide white road, flying. There was a coverlet of white furs at the foot of the sleigh, and I pulled it up over my knees for the small comfort of soft fur inside my clenching fingers. I didn't feel the cold at all. Intriguing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I love the name thing. I know. Oh, it's so good. And the the name thing makes more sense when you read it, but I won't say why. Like, why he wouldn't give her mm. his name. So yeah, I love this. It's also just very much my humour. that It's like, I said I'd marry you because I didn't think you'd do it, but <laughs> you have, so <laughs> we're here. <laughs> um... Also, I love the vibe of, like, the only thing good enough for this would be to marry me. Yeah, well, it's to be made a queen. Yeah, but, yeah. but you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, yeah, like, as I said earlier, all the narratives get caught, caught up in one another soon enough after this. So, for example, the silver that Mariam is given by the Staric ends up in the, like, Irina Myrnatius plotline. Mm. I won't say how again. <laughs> So I'm going to end by reading out the final line of the book, which I I wouldn't normally do, obviously, but I'm going to do it with no context, so I promise you will not know what has happened (laughs) unless you read the whole book, but I cannot share it because it made me so happy. (laughs) And it is this. In silver ink he signed his name, but I won't ever tell you what it is. Oh! Genius! (laughs) Genius! <laughs> Bastards! <sighs> so, yeah, as you can perhaps tell, because I picked so many quotes out, I loved this book. It's such a great winter read as well. Yeah, it's like, very Christmassy. Yeah, like, I can see myself reading this, like, every winter. It's like a little tradition. Um, And what I tried to do was, like, introduce the plot points without telling you where they go. So hopefully you will be as surprised as I was at the direction that the book goes in. I've read quite a few fairy tale retellings recently, as this season shows, and I really enjoyed them all. 
And I do remember saying that Wendy Darling was one of my favourite retellings I've read, but I hadn't read this at that point, and I think this might beat it, mm. if you can count it as a retelling, because it is a very, very loose retelling. And yeah, I'm also really keen to read Uprooted by Novik as well. I do actually have it. And that one actually came out before Spinning Silver. And it seems to have less of a definitive inspiration, like Spinning Silver had Rumpelstiltskin. But I have seen people mention elements of Beauty and the Beast and Rapunzel. Um, and it's still got like the Polish or Slavic fairy tale elements. Um, so yeah, I'm just a big fan of, of this, of Novik. <laughs> And she has like a Dark Academia series as well, which I feel like oh. I need to read. So yeah, that's me. I'm done. Really? <laughs> well done. What are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert. I had so much fun reading this book. I really want to read this. I sent passages from this book to so many people. Mm. Like, I was so annoying. <laughs> I basically did infatuated live. <laughs> But yeah, I could hardly finish what I was doing every day to try and get back into it, which I haven't had for ages. So for a bit of context, Elizabeth Gilbert also wrote Eat, Pray, Love, which I haven't read. No, I've not read it either, actually. But I do love the movie. But this novel came out in 2019. It was a Sunday Times bestseller, and I think it deserves all the hype. <laughs> so the story is told to us by seamstress Vivian, who is now in her 80s but is looking back at her younger self from the 1940s to the present day of mm. the book. So when Vivian is 19, she drops out of college and in disgrace is shipped off to New York City to live with her aunt Peg, who runs a falling down old theatre called the Lily Playhouse. Oh. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> when she gets there, she meets glamorous showgirl Celia and a host of other eccentric characters. And basically she ends up getting into all sorts of trouble which goes on to domino effect a lot of her life. Mm -hmm. We follow Vivian's journey from theatre costume maker to unmarried owner of a wedding dress boutique. (laughs) And there's so many, the first thing I want to talk about is that there's so many lush descriptions of clothes and costumes and trying on personas Mm. like this one. This is from very early in the book and it's when Vivian is put on the train to New York to begin her journey. And I'm just going to jump straight in with this quote so that you get an idea of her voice. They sent me to New York on the train and what a terrific train it was too. The Empire State Express, straight out of Utica. A gleaming, chrome, delinquent daughter delivery service. I said my polite farewells to mother and dad and handed my baggage over to a red cap which made me feel important. I sat in the dining car for the whole ride, sipping malted milk, eating pears in syrup, smoking cigarettes and paging through the magazines. I knew I was being banished, but still, in style. Trains were so much better back then, Angela. I promise that I will try my best in these pages not to go on and on and on about how much better everything was back in my day. I always hated hearing old people yammering on like this when I was young. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about your golden age, you blathering goat. And I do want to assure you, I'm aware that many things were not better in the 1940s. Underarm deodorants and air conditioning were woefully inadequate, for instance, so everybody stank like crazy, especially in the summer, and also we had Hitler. But trains were unquestionably better back then. When was the last time you got to enjoy a malted milk and a cigarette on a train? I boarded the train wearing a chipper little blue rayon dress with a Skylark print. 
yellow traceries around the neckline, a moderately slim skirt and deep pockets set in at the hips. I remember the stress so vividly because, first of all, I never forget what anyone is wearing ever, and also I'd sewn the thing myself. A fine job I'd done with it too. The swing of it, hitting just at mid-calf, was flirty and effective. I remember having stitched extra shoulder pads into that dress, in the desperate hope of resembling Joan Crawford, though I'm not sure the effect worked. With my modest cloche hat and my borrowed-from-mother plain blue handbag, filled with cosmetics, cigarettes and not much else, I looked less like a screen siren and mostly like what I actually was, a 19-year-old virgin on her way to visit a relative. Accompanying this 19-year-old virgin to New York City were two large suitcases, one filled with all my clothes, neatly folded in tissue, and the other packed with fabrics, trimmings and sewing supplies so that I could make more clothes. Also joining me was a sturdy crate containing my sewing machine, a heavy and unwieldy beast, awkward to transport. But it was my demented, beautiful soul twin, without which I could not live. So along with me it came. <laughs> oh, I love it already. I know! <laughs> oh, also, I'm going to explain who Angela is. We'll come back to that. Okay. But one really interesting thing about this book is the way that it's framed and structured. So, it's essentially in two halves. The first half of the book spans the three-month summer after Vivian arrives at the Lily. And the second half spans the rest of her life. Okay. So you have this really cool, like, full story where you get all this extreme detail of this life-defining summer, and then you get to zoom out and see how it impacts the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. And in that zooming out, the pace really slows, but not in like a bad way. Mm-hmm. So the story gets a lot deeper once it slows down, which is kind of the same with Vivian. So that by the end of the book, you feel like you've lived her life with her, which I love. Mm-hmm. But the other cool thing about the structure is that Vivian isn't telling her story to the reader. She's telling it to another character, Angela. But we don't know who Angela is. Okay. Angela, we know, is the daughter of an unnamed man who we know has been important in Vivian's life. But we spend most of the novel not knowing which man he is or how Angela and Vivian are connected. Mm. Um, So at the very beginning, Vivian receives a letter from Angela, so I'll read that out to give you an idea of the plot. Mm -hmm. Also, can I just say that the the dedication, or the not not dedication, the epigraph of this book is a quote from Colette, who I've done an episode on, and it's, you will do foolish things, but do them with enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. So yeah, this is the, the prologue of the book. And it takes place in New York City, April 2010. I received a letter from his daughter the other day. Angela. I'd thought about Angela many times over the years, but this was only our third interaction. The first was when I'd made her a wedding dress back in 1971. The second was when she'd written to tell me that her father had died. That was in 1977. Now she was writing to let me know that her mother had just passed away. I'm not sure how Angela expected me to receive this news. She might have guessed it would throw me for a loop. That said, I don't suspect malice on her part. Angela is not constructed that way. She's a good person. More important, an interesting one. I was awfully surprised, though, to hear that Angela's mother had lasted this long. I'd assumed the woman had died ages ago. God knows everyone else has. But why should anyone's longevity surprise me when I myself have clung to existence like a barnacle to a boat bottom? I can't be the only ancient woman still tottering around New York City, absolutely refusing to either 
abandon her life or her real estate. It was the last line of Angela's letter though that impacted me the most. Vivian, Angela wrote, given that my mother has passed away, I wonder if you might now feel comfortable telling me what you were to my father. Well then, what was I to her father? Only he could have answered that question, and since he never chose to discuss me with his daughter, it's not my place to tell Angela what I was to him. I can, however, tell her what he was to me. Oh, I'm like so nearly <laughs> crying. <laughs> this book is so good. But that's the plot. It's yeah. the whole story as Vivian trying to explain to Angela is very how I met your mother. Like Yeah, well I've seen the first the reason I knew about this book is because I've seen it mentioned on TikTok before of like if you like Evel- the Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo mm. you'll like this. And I but I didn't really know why. Like yeah. that's that was it. But I get it now, it's kinda like you've almost got a similar structure to Evelyn Hugo and it's like you've got a mystery of like who the narrator is to to or the not the narrator, but who the how how they're connected, yeah. the the person speaking, the person writing the story down. So I get it, and yeah. I suppose it's a similar time period as well. Yeah, so. exactly. It's very very Evelyn Hugo vibes. Mm. But yeah, that's the premise. Um, Vivian telling her story of who Angela's father is to her, but we don't know who Angela's father is, mm-hmm. and I just think that makes it really compelling because then the whole. Then every story becomes like a sidetrack, which we mm. know that I love. Yeah. But you've got this mystery. You can never get too sidetracked, or you can get really invested in the sidetracks because you know you're coming back to this central thread mm-hmm. of like, who who is Angela's father? Yeah. And you're like looking out for him everywhere, mm-hmm. which is good fun. But my favourite thing about this novel is the cast of characters <laughs> and the way that it introduces people. Vivian, like, as a character is one of my favourites because she loves everyone immediately and so fiercely <laughs> that you can't help but love her when she describes the people that she knows or knew. Yeah. And so the fact that you're looking out for someone impactful is really hard because everyone seems larger than life to Vivian. Mm. So I've just picked out a few of my favourite passages of Vivian talking about other characters because I think they're fun and I'm not going to analyse them. So here's one from near the start about Vivian's grandmother. And this also is the story of the sewing machine. You may read the word grandmother, Angela, and perhaps your mind summons up some image of a sweet little old lady with white hair. That wasn't my grandmother. My grandmother was a tall, passionate, aging coquette with dyed mahogany hair who moved through life in a plume of perfume and gossip and who dressed like a circus show. She was the most colourful woman in the world, and I mean that in all definitions of the word colourful. Grandmother wore crushed velvet gowns in elaborate colours, colours that she did not call pink or burgundy or blue like the rest of the imagination-impoverished public, but instead referred to as Ashes of Rose or Cordovan or Della Robbia. She had pierced ears, which most respectable ladies did not have back then, and she owned several plush jewellery boxes filled with an endless tumble of cheap and expensive chains and earrings and bracelets. She had a motoring costume for her afternoon drives in the country, and her hats were so big that they required their own seats at the theatre. She enjoyed kittens and mail-order cosmetics. She thrilled over tabloid accounts of sensational murders, and she was known to write romantic verse. But more than anything else, my grandmother loved drama. She went to see every play and performance that came through town, and also adored the moving pictures. I was often her date, as she and I possessed exactly the same taste. 
Grandmother Morris and I both gravitated towards stories where innocent girls in airy gowns were abducted by dangerous men with sinister hats and then rescued by other men with proud chins. Obviously I loved her. The rest of the family, though, didn't. My grandmother embarrassed everyone but me. She especially embarrassed her daughter-in-law, my mother, who was not a frivolous person and who never stopped wincing at Grandmother Morris, whom she once referred to as that swoony perpetual adolescent. Mother, needless to say, was not known to write romantic verse. Oh, I love her! I know! <laughs> I love Grandmother Morris! <laughs> so fun. Um, and then we have a character who I have a lot of affection for. It is Aunt Peg's, heavy inverted commas here, secretary, mm. Olive, who becomes a pretty solid rock for Vivian throughout her life. Um, and she really reminds me of Susie from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Right, cool. Which, by the way, if you like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you'll love this book. Mm. It has the same tone. So here is Olive finding Vivian at Grand Central Station hours after her train has got in. Okay. This is all within like the first 20 pages of the book, by the way, so none of this is a spoiler. <laughs> My rescuer turned out to be a short, silver-haired woman in a modest grey suit who approached me the way a St Bernard approaches a Stradnid skier, with dedicated focus and serious intent to save a life. Modest is actually not a strong enough word to describe the suit that this woman was wearing. It was a double-breasted and square little cinder block of an item. The kind of garment that is intentionally made to fool the world into thinking that women do not possess breasts, waist or hips. It looked to me like a British import. It was a fright. The woman also wore chunky low-heeled black oxfords and an old-fashioned boiled wool green hat of the type favoured by women who run orphanages. I knew her sort from boarding school. She looked like a spinster who drank Ovaltine for dinner and gargled with salt water for vitality. She was plain from end to end, and furthermore, she was plain on purpose. This brick of a matron approached me with much clarity of mission, frowning, holding in her hands a disconcertingly large picture in an ornate silver frame. She peered at the picture in her hands and then at me. Are you Vivian Morris? she asked. Her crisp accent betrayed the truth that the double-breasted suit was not the only severe British import in town. I allowed that I was. You've grown she said. I was puzzled. Did I know this woman? Had I met her when I was younger? Seeing my confusion, the stranger showed me the framed picture in her hands. Bafflingly, this item turned out to be a portrait of my own family from about four years prior. It was a photo we'd taken in a proper studio when my mother had decided that we needed to be, in her words, officially documented for once. There were my parents, enduring the indignity of being photographed by a tradesman. There was my thoughtful-looking brother, Walter, with his hand on my mother's shoulder. There was a ganglier and younger version of myself, wearing a sailor dress that was far too girlish for my age. I'm Olive Thompson, announced the woman, in a voice that indicated she was accustomed to making announcements. I'm your aunt's secretary. She was unable to come. There was an emergency today at the theatre, a small fire. She sent me to find you. My apologies for making you wait. I was here several hours ago, but as my only means of identifying you was this photo, it took me some time to locate you, as you can see. I wanted to laugh then, and I want to laugh now, just remembering it. The idea of the splinty middle-aged woman wandering around Grand Central Station with a giant photograph in a silver frame, a frame that looked as though it had been ripped off in haste from a rich person's wall, which it had been, and staring at every face, 
trying to match the person before her to a portrait of a girl taken four years earlier was wickedly funny to me. How had I missed her? Olive Thompson did not seem to think that this was funny though. I would soon discover that this was typical. Your bags, she said, collect them, then we'll taxi over to the Lily. The late show has already begun. Hurry up now, make no flim flam about it. I walked behind her obediently, a baby duck following a mama duck. I made no flim flam about it. I thought to myself, a small fire, but I did not have the courage to ask. It's <laughs> <laughs> so good. It's so good. <laughs> I genuinely had to keep it together because the line I made no flim flam about it just kills me. Oh, oh it's so funny. That idea of her walking about with that frame <laughs> is hilarious. That is so Mrs. May's all like, right? plot line. <laughs> That's what I mean, the whole, like, every single scene in this book is just pil- like packed with, like, the weirdest action. Yeah. And you're like, what is happening? <laughs> then we meet Celia. Sorry, this is a long one, but it's the last, it's the last one. Yep. So we meet <laughs> Celia, the girl that Vivian becomes somewhat, like, infatuated with and in awe of. Mm-hmm. and who helps Vivian to create mischief. And this is <laughs> our... We, we meet her before this, but this is our first proper introduction to Celia. There was one more person living at the Lily when I moved in, and I've saved her for last because she was the most important to me. That person was Celia, the showgirl, my goddess. I had been told by Olive that Celia was lodging with us only temporarily, just until she got things sorted out. The reason Celia needed a place to stay was because she'd recently been evicted from their rehearsal club, a respectable and inexpensive hotel for women on West 53rd Street, where a good many Broadway dancers and actresses stayed back in the day. But Celia had lost her place at the rehearsal club because she'd been caught with a man in her room, so Peg had offered Celia a room at the Lily as a stopgap measure. I got the sense that Olive disapproved of this offering, but then again Olive mostly disapproved of everything that Peg offered to people for free. This wasn't a palatial offering in any case. Celia's little room down the hall was far more humble than my fancy set-up over in Uncle Billy's never-used pied-à-terre. Oh, for context, Uncle Billy is Auntie Peg's husband. They've not been together for about 20 years. She keeps a little pied-à-terre for him in case he comes home. Celia's bolt hole wasn't much more than a utility closet with a cot and a tiny bit of floor upon which to strew her clothing. The room had a window, but it faced a hot, stinking alley. Celia's room didn't have a carpet, she didn't have a sink, she didn't have a mirror, she didn't have a closet, and she certainly didn't have a large, handsome bed like I had. All of this probably explains why Celia moved in with me my second night at the Lily. She did so without asking. There was no discussion about it whatsoever. It just happened, and at the most unexpected time, too. Somewhere in the dark hours between midnight and dawn on day two of my sojourn in New York City, Celia stumbled into my bedroom, woke me up with a hard bump to the shoulder and uttered one boozy word. Scoot. So I scooted. I moved over to the other side of the bed as she tumbled onto my mattress, commandeered my pillow, wrapped the entirety of my sheet around her beautiful form and fell unconscious in a matter of moments. Well, this was exciting. This was so exciting, in fact, that I couldn't fall back to sleep. I didn't dare move. For one thing, I'd lost my pillow and I was now pressed against the wall, so I was no longer comfortable. But the more serious issue here was, what is the protocol when a drunk and fully dressed showgirl has just collapsed onto your bed? Unclear. So I lay there in stillness and silence, listening to her thick breathing, smelling the cigarette smoke and perfume on her hair, and wondering how we could manage the inevitable awkwardness when the morning came. 
Celia finally roused herself around seven o'clock when the sunlight that was glaring into the bedroom became impossible to ignore. She gave a decadent yawn and stretched fully, taking up even more of the bed. She was still wearing all her makeup and was dressed in her reckless evening gown from the night before. She was stunning. She looked like an angel who'd fallen to the earth, straight through a hole in the floor of some celestial nightclub. Hey Vivi, she said, blinking away the sun. Thanks for sharing your bed. That cot they gave me is torture. I couldn't take it anymore. I hadn't been fully confident at this point that Celia even knew my name, so to hear her use the affectionate diminutive Vivi flooded me with joy. That's all right, I said. You can sleep here any time. Really? She said. That's terrific. I'll move my things in here today. Well then, I guess I had a roommate now. That was fine with me, though. I was just honoured she'd chosen me. I wanted this strange, exotic moment to last as long as possible, so I dared to make conversation. Say, I asked, where'd you go out to last night? She seemed surprised that I cared. El Morocco, she said. I saw John Rockefeller there. Did you? He's the pits. He wanted to dance, but I was out with some other fellows. Who'd you go out with? Nobody special. Just a couple of guys who aren't about to take me home to meet their mothers. What kind of guys? Celia settled back into bed, lit a smoke and told me all about her night. She explained that she'd gone out with some Jewish boys who were pretending to be gangsters, but then they ran into some real Jewish gangsters so the pretenders had to scram and she ended up with a fellow who took her to Brooklyn and then paid for a limousine to take her home. I was entranced by every detail. We stayed in bed for another hour as she narrated for me, in that unforgettably gruff voice of hers, every detail of an evening in the life of one Celia Ray, New York City showgirl. I drank it all down like spring water. By the next day, all of Celia's belongings had migrated into my apartment. Her tubes of grease paint and pots of cold cream now cluttered up every surface. Her vials of Elizabeth Arden competed for space on Uncle Billy's elegant desk against her compacts of Helena Rubinstein. Her long hair is laced my sink. My floor was an instant tangle of brassieres and fishnets, garters and girdles. She had such prodigious quantities of undergarments, I swear Celia Ray had a way of making negligees reproduce. Her used perspiration-soaked dress shields were hiding under my bed like little mice. Her tweezers bit into my feet when I stepped on them. She was outrageously entitled. She wiped her lipstick on my towels. She borrowed my sweaters without asking. My pillowcases became stained with black smudges from Celia's mascara and my sheets were dyed orange from her pancake makeup. And there wasn't anything this girl wouldn't use as an ashtray, including once while I was in it, the bathtub. Incredibly, I didn't mind any of this. On the contrary, I never wanted her to leave. If I'd had a roommate this interesting back at Vassar, I might have stayed in college. To my mind, Celia Ray was perfection. She was New York City's very distillation, a glittering composite of sophistication and mystery. I would endure any filth or befouling just to have access to her. Anyhow, our living arrangement seemed to suit us both perfectly. I got to be near her glamour and she got to be near my sink. <laughs> I know it was long, but you can't you can't stop in the middle of one of these passages because the endings are so good. Yeah. I can like see that room as well. Right? Oh, so good. It's so vivid. I don't have that many more, but for this <laughs> next one I need to give you a little bit of context. Mm-hmm. So I told you Aunt Peg is technically married to Uncle Billy. Uncle Billy is a movie star. Mm. And they got married when they were very young. And they're not divorced, but obviously they're not together. Mm. 
Peg is with Olive. But Peg still does love Billy dearly and so she keeps a room for him. Viv gets Billy's room and she goes to stay and though she's heard about her Uncle Billy her whole life and she's seen him in magazines, she's never actually met him. Mm-hmm. And this is how they meet. And he's one of my favourite characters. <laughs> They're all amazing and I'm trying to only introduce ones that like don't become spoilers in a way. Mm-hmm. But here we go. This one's not quite as long. I turned 20 years old on October 7th, 1940. I celebrated my first birthday in New York exactly how you might imagine I would. I went out with the showgirls, we gave the jump to some playboys, we drank rank after rank of cocktails on other people's dime, we had tumults of fun, and the next thing you know we were trying to get home before the sun came up, feeling as if we were swimming upstream through bilge water. I slept for about eight minutes, it seemed, and then woke to the oddest sensation in my room. Something felt off. I was hungover, of course, quite possibly still even officially drunk, but still something was strange. I reached for Celia to see if she was there with me. My hand brushed against her familiar flesh, so all was normal on that front. Except that I smelled smoke. Pipe smoke. I sat up and my head instantly regretted the decision. I lay back down on the pillow, took a few brave breaths, apologised to my skull for the assault and tried again, more slowly and respectfully this time. As my eyes focused in the dim morning light, I could see a figure sitting in a chair across the room. A male figure smoking a pipe and looking at us. Had Celia brought someone home with her? Had I? I felt a heave of panic. Celia and I were libertines, as I've well established, but I'd always had just enough respect for Peg, or fear of Olive, more like it, not to allow men to visit our bedroom upstairs at the Lily. How had this happened? Imagine my delight, said the stranger, lighting his pipe again, to come home and find two girls in my bed. And both of you so stunning. It's as though I went to my icebox to get milk and discovered a bottle of champagne instead. Two bottles of champagne, to be exact. My mind still couldn't register. Until then, suddenly, it could. Uncle Billy? I asked. Or are you my niece? The man said, and started laughing. Damn it. That limits our possibilities considerably. What's your name, love? I'm Vivian Morris. Oh, he said. Now this makes sense. You are my niece. How disheartening. I suppose the family wouldn't approve if I ravaged you. I might not even approve of myself if I ravaged you. I've become so moral in my old age. Alas, alas. Is the other one my niece too? I hope not. She doesn't look like she could be anyone's niece. This one is Celia, I said, gesturing to Celia's beautiful unconscious form. She's my friend. Your very particular friend, Billy said in amused tone, if one is to judge from sleeping arrangements. How very modern of you, Vivian. I approve heartily. Don't worry, I won't tell your parents, though I'm sure they'd find a way to blame me for it if they ever find out. I stammered. I'm sorry about... I wasn't sure how to finish the sentence. I'm sorry about taking over your apartment. I'm sorry about commandeering your bed. I'm sorry about still wet stockings that we've hung from your fireplace mantle to dry. I'm sorry for the orange makeup stains that we've smeared into your white carpet. Oh, it's all right. I don't live here. The lily is Peg's baby, not mine. I always stay at the racket in the tennis club. I've never let my Jews lapse, though God knows it's expensive. It's quieter there and I don't have to report to Olive. But these are your rooms. In name only, thanks to the kindness of your Aunt Peg. I just came by this morning to get my typewriter, which, now that I mention it, appears to be missing. I put it in the linen closet in the outside hallway. Did you? Well, make yourself at home, girlie. 
I'm sorry I started to say, but he cut me off again. I'm joking. You can keep the place. I don't come to New York much anyhow. I don't like the climate. It gives me a raw throat. And this city is a hell of a place for ruining your best pair of white shoes. I had so many questions, but I couldn't formulate any of them with my dry and foul-tasting mouth through the buzzing haze of my gin-soaked brain. What was Uncle Billy doing here? Who had let him in? Why was he wearing a tuxedo at this hour? And what was I wearing? Apparently nothing but a slip. And not even my own slip, but Celia's. So what was she wearing? And where was my dress? Well, I've had my fun here, said Billy. Enjoyed my little fantasy of angels in my bed. But now that I realise you're my ward, I'll leave you be and I'll see if I can find some coffee in this place. You look like you could use some coffee yourself, girly. May I say, I do hope you're getting this drunk every night and tumbling into bed with beautiful women. There could be no better use of your time. You make me awfully proud to be your uncle. We'll get along famously. As he headed to the door, he asked, What time does Peg get up, by the way? Usually around seven, I said. Capital, he said, looking at his watch. Can't wait to see her. But how did you get here? I asked dumbly. What I meant was, how did you get into this building? Which was a silly question, because of course Peg would have made sure that her husband, or ex-husband, or whatever he was, had a set of keys. But he took the question more broadly. I took the 20th Century Limited. That's the only way to get from Los Angeles to New York in comfort, if you've got the peanuts for it. Train stopped in Chicago to pick up some slaughterhouse high society types. Doris Day was in the same carriage as me, the whole ride. We played Jim Rummy, all the way across the Great Plains. Doris is good company, you know, a great girl. Much more fun than you'd think, given her saintly reputation. Arrived last night, went right to my club, got a manicure and a haircut, went out to see some old robbers and derelicts and ne'er-do-wells that I used to know, then came here to pick up my typewriter and say hello to my family. Get yourself a robe, girly, and come help me scare up some breakfast in this joint. You won't want to miss what happens next. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so good. I know. (laughs) I love his little dialogue. Like, that he talks like he's in a movie. Yeah. (laughs) Also, that's my sister's birthday as well. Is it? October 7th? Yeah. There you go. Birthday twins with Vivian. (laughs) So yeah, I could go on, you, but you get it. Every character gets a chance to shine. They're all very shiny. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just because I'm a sucker for the I will always love you, but we're not meant to be lovers to friends trope. Mm. But I really love Peg and Billy's relationship. Mm. Like the fact that she keeps the room for him because she knows that he'll need it. Yeah. Which he, like, spoiler alert, he later does. Mm. Is very my shit. So I wanted to end this long infatuation with a really sweet Peg and Billy scene which follows on from that one where all the characters have moved into the kitchen. Also for context, Mr Herbert is the scriptwriter at The Lily and um, he's always on the verge of a mental breakdown. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, he's, he's pretty good. But this is my final scene. That's when Aunt Peg walked in, bundled up in her plaid flannel bathrobe, her hair pointing in every direction. Pegsy! cried Billy, leaping up from the table. His face was instantly bright with joy. All the nonchalance was gone in a heartbeat. Forgive me, sir, but your name escapes me, said Peg. She was smiling too, and in the next moment they were embracing. It wasn't a romantic embrace, I would say, but it was robust. This was an embrace of love, or at least very strong feeling. They pulled back from the embrace and just looked at each other for a while, holding each other lightly by the forearms. When they stood like that together, I could see something profoundly unexpected for the first time. I could see that Peg was kind of beautiful. I'd never noticed it before. She had such a shine on her face, looking at Billy, that it changed her whole countenance. 
It wasn't merely the reflected light of his good looks either. Standing in his radius, she looked like a different woman. I could see in her face a hint of the brave young girl who went off to France to be a nurse during the war. I could see the adventurer who'd spent a decade on the road with a cheap theatrical touring company. It wasn't only that she suddenly looked ten years younger, she also looked like the most fun gal in town. I thought I'd pay you a visit, honey, Billy said. So Olive informed me. You might have let me know. I didn't want to bother you, and I didn't want you to tell me not to come. I figured it'd be best if I made my own arrangements. I have a secretary now who takes care of everything for me. She made all the travel plans. Jean Marie is her name. She's bright, efficient, devoted. You'd love her, Peg. She's like a female version of Olive. Peg pulled away from him. Jesus, Billy, you never quit. Hey, don't be sore at me. I'm just teasing. You know I can't help it. I'm just nervous, Pegsy. I'm afraid you'll throw me out, honey, and I just got here. Mr. Herbert stood up from the kitchen table. He said, I'm going somewhere else now, and left. Peg took Mr. Herbert's seat and helped herself to a sip of his cold Sanka. She frowned at the cup, so I got up to make her a fresh cup of coffee. I wasn't sure if I should even be in the kitchen at the sensitive moment, but then Peg said, Good morning, Vivian. Did you enjoy your birthday celebration? A bit too much, I said. And you've met your Uncle Billy? Yes, we've been talking. Oh dear, be careful not to absorb anything he tells you. Peg, said Billy, you look gorgeous. She ran a hand through her cropped hair and smiled, a big smile that settled deeply into her lined face. That's quite a compliment for a woman like me. There is no woman like you. I've checked into it. Doesn't exist. Billy, she said, give it a rest. Never. So what are you doing here, Billy? Do you have a job in the city? No job. I'm on civilian furlough. I couldn't resist making the trip when you told me Edna was here and that you're trying to make a good show for her. I haven't seen Edna since 1919. Christ, I'd love to see her. I adore that woman. And when you told me you'd enlisted Donald Herbert to write the script of all people, I knew I had to come back east and rescue you. Thank you. That was terribly kind of you. But if I needed rescue, Billy, I'd have let you know. I promise. You'd be the 14th or 15th person I'd call. He grinned. But still on the list. Peg lit a cigarette and handed it to me, then lit another one for herself. What are you working on out there in Hollywood? A bunch of nothing. Everything I write is proudly stamped NSA. No significance attempted. I'm bored. But they pay me well, enough to keep me comfortable. Me and my simple needs. Peg burst out laughing. Your simple needs. Your famously simple needs. Yes, Billy, you're quite the renunciate. Practically a monk. I'm a man of humble tastes, as you know, said Billy. Himself, who comes to breakfast table dressed like he's about to be knighted. Himself, with his house in Malibu. How many swimming pools do you have now? None. I just borrow John Fontaine's. And what does Joan get out of that arrangement? The pleasure of my company. Jesus, Billy, she's married. She's Brian's wife. He's your friend. I love married women, Peg. You know that. Ideally, happily married ones. A happily married woman is the most solid friend a man could ever have. Don't worry, Pegsy. Joan is just a pal. Brian Ahern is in no danger from the likes of me. I could not stop looking from Peg to Billy and back again, trying to imagine these two as a romantic couple. They didn't look like they belonged together physically, but their conversation flickered so bright and sharp. The teasing, the jabs of knowing, the fullness of the attention they gave each other. The intimacy was more than obvious. But what were they within that intimacy? Lovers? Friends? Siblings? Rivals? Who knew? I gave up trying to figure it out and just watched the lightning flash between them. 
I'd like to spend some time with you while I'm here, Pegsy, he said. It's been too long. Who is she? Peg asks. Who is who? The woman who just left you, which has caused you to feel so suddenly nostalgic and lonely for me. Come on, spill it. Who was the latest Miss Billy to leave your side? I'm insulted. You think you know me so well. Peg just gazed at him, waiting. If you must know, said Billy, her name was Camilla. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I've got. I don't have anything to say because I don't want to give away spoilers. And I think that seeing the story unfold is what makes this book fun. Mm -hmm. But literally a whole novel is like that. You could open it to any page and it would be like that. So if you like character-driven storytelling and the vintage New York vibes, it's a good choice. Yeah. Oh, I'm really excited to read that at some point. <laughs> it's so good. I honestly, like, I love as well how Vivian in that scene is like, I can't get enough of these two because that is how you feel about them the whole mm. way through. Nice. Anyway, mm. that was a long <coughs> chat. It was. Writing. <laughs> yes. We were going to talk about literary pilgrimages mm -hmm. that you have made or would like to make. Mm -hmm. What you got? I feel like I haven't made any, mm. so I'm just going to talk about the ones I would like to make. Nice. A lot of them are like tied to my creative writing and my PhD, mm -hmm. so I've just lumped them all together. So top of my list is New Haven and the Yale campus. Ah. Uh, I'm writing about Ninth House by Lee Bardugo in my thesis, which is set at Yale, and my supervisor says a trip there could be on the cards, and I would love that because I'm so buzzing to see the cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, for anyone who doesn't know, like, Yale campus just, like, has this massive cemetery on its campus. It's full of, like, mausoleums and tombs and it just looks amazing. And I think it would be really good research for the ghost novel that I want to write next as well. Oh. For other ones, I don't think with the timeline I'm aiming for that I'll get to Cornwall before my novel is, fingers crossed, published. But it would be good to get back there to see some of the locations that I've included again. But again, I don't know if I managed that. There are also loads of like gothic or literary places in the UK that I'd love to visit again for like my PhD or just ghosty novel inspiration. So there's York, where I have been before when I was younger, but I'm desperate to go back to because it's like supposedly one of the most haunted places in the UK. Mm. And not far from there, you've got Whitby as well which I'm sure gothic fans will know is where Dracula comes ashore in Dracula. <laughs> it's got like a gothic festival, a steampunk festival, like it's just it's a very gothic place and again I was there when I was younger but I feel like I didn't fully appreciate how like literary a place it is. Yeah. Especially like again the cemetery and <laughs> like the kind of chapel ruins. I'm pretty sure Bronte is buried there. I think you might I forget right. which one. I want to say who's the one that everyone forgets. Anne. Yeah, might be. Might be her. Yeah, and then just lastly, this isn't necessarily about writing, but because it's quite gothic, I thought I'd just mm. mention it. Um, but I would love to see Strawberry Hill. So Horace Walpole, who wrote the Castle of Otranto, which is widely considered the first gothic novel. He built a, this like big gothic estate outside of London 
called Strawberry Hill and I would just love to see it. It's bright white but it's gothic. That's... There's so many metal things about that. Yeah. White, gothic, Strawberry Hill. Yeah. So he built this place, like this gothic estate and then the castle of Otranto was supposedly inspired by all the weird dreams that he had when he was there. I feel like at some point in recent history, like that kind of time, architects were just really having a moment. Like, <laughs> like they were wilding out mm. with, like, could you have the the Barcelona guy that made the big park? Gaudi. Gaudi, yeah. yeah. And you've got this guy making his weird gothic estate. Mm-hmm. Like, place is, place is powerful, man. <laughs> <laughs> what were they on? I don't know. So those are my choices. What nice. I haven't made any either, but I'd love to go to where Oscar Wilde died in Paris. Mm. Paris has very much been calling me recently, as I keep telling you. Yeah. And I've always been fascinated with where people go to die. Because mm. he went there to die, mm. essentially. Like, he pretty much knew he was going to die. Yeah. And then there's obviously the Eve's Hollywood tour, which I really want <laughs> to do. Essentially tracking all the places in Eve Babbitt's LA books. Yeah. I really want to drive the routes that she talks about, which I know is insane because everyone says that driving in LA is a literal nightmare <laughs> and I would be a nervous wreck. But I feel like you experience a place differently from a car and so much of the books that I love take place in cars mm-hmm. that I just want to drive about there. Yeah. And that's all that I had because honestly I couldn't, I couldn't think of anywhere else. Yeah, I'm sure there's loads of places in books that I want to go to, but I just can't think of them. Yeah. Like, I always get really into the vibe of the setting that I'm reading, and then I forget. Oh, I'll tell you what I have done, because I've been to London a few times. If you go to Blackfriars Bridge, that's where, for the Shadowhunter fans, that's where Tessa and Jem meet every year, for those of you who know. That's That's a nice wee spot to go to because someone like once made like I don't think it's there anymore but someone once made a sign and it was like this is where Tessa and Jen meet every year on the, the anniversary of a thing <laughs> I'm not saying <laughs> I've done that that's cute I mean I've been to like the Harry Potter studios so if mm. you can count that as like I went to the to the set to the yeah filming um, location yeah. yeah but I don't feel like that's like because that's not you know yeah it's not literary it's more film based but you Mm. know but i can't think of i've definitely been places where like book moments have happened yeah but i suppose i've been to the glenfinnan viaduct which Mm, yeah which the train goes goes. but yeah i don't know i never really think about that when i'm somewhere no i don't really either but maybe we should What's your quickfire favourite? My quickfire favourite is another song. I feel like I've done quite a lot of songs this season. And it's called Off My Mind by Joe P, which I only discovered because Spotify recommended his EP to me. And it's called Emily Can't Sing. So obviously I was like, well, I need to see what that is about. <laughs> um, and the EP is really good, but this song is by far my favourite. It's like a little bit rock maybe like alternative rock but what I really like about it is the instrumentals so it has quite rocky guitars from the start as he's singing 
but then in the second verse he sings one line and all of a sudden the drums start too and it's just like a full-on like like angsty rock lyrics but quite upbeat sound which we know that I like yeah <laughs> and yet it's a breakup song and I like how it plays in that contradiction of saying like now you're off my mind because the fact that you're even thinking like oh you're off my mind shows yes. that they're not off your mind <laughs> so I thought I'd just read out a couple lyrics too so the one where all those drums kick in he's just singing I still put my hand around the headrest in my Honda Accord <laughs> the drums come in on Honda Accord <laughs> which I really like because it's not a big dramatic line but like the music yeah. makes it sound dramatic and the chorus is and we'll be better by the summer you'll come out from underneath your coat I'll be making toast in the tub with all my ducks in a row wearing all of my clothes Oofed. Oh, yeah. The first time I clicked what those lyrics meant, I was like, oh, oh shit, because <laughs> I hadn't like listened to it properly the first time. So yeah, it's a really good song. Sounds depressing, but it's no, it it's sounds fun. witty though. Yeah, it's it is witty, and yeah, just like the song just ends with, and now you're off my mind. <laughs> it's very um, Taylor Swift has a song called I Forgot That You Existed. Yeah, and it's very similar vibes. It sounds like the same like, thing. Yeah. Like the whole song's being like, I'm so happy because you're gone out of my head and you're like But you're singing But you're singing about it though. <laughs> nice. Okay, what's your quick fire favourite? So at the risk of reading out more quotes because I actually hadn't realised how many quotes that I had marked down <laughs> for City of Girls, my quick fire favourite this week is a poem. I marked it down weeks ago to share with you because I thought that you would like it. Mm. Because I know that you like a Greek mythology reference. <gasps> Yes. It's called The Tiny Men in the Horse's Mouth by Matthew Olsman <laughs> from his book Mezzanines. And it's quite short. Mm-hmm. So here we go. Never look a gift horse in the mouth, but what if on the horse's tongue there's a tiny little man playing piano? Why would you not look at that? That's incredible, is a quote by Dan Cummins. It's why the gift horse is a gift, and there is always a tiny man inside though sometimes more than one. You should look, peer as far back as you can, because if he's not playing piano, he and his friends might be sharpening blades inside that dark, inside the horse's belly, inside your sleeping city. Twenty men crawl out of the gift. You'll want to see this. You'll want to see how they spell out and open the gates and paint everything the colour of burned flesh. The war is ending. Achilles is dead. Paris lives on in shame. And one man plays piano as the city burns. I've been there, and because I didn't look, I never saw it coming. The phone calls in the middle of the night, hospital beds, friends staggering in and the world on fire. The horse's mouth. Pry the jaws back and stare through the flame that falls between the teeth and the hallway of the throat. Whoever told you not to look at this is hiding something. Because the world is beautiful, haunted and begging you to receive its offering. May you never find such music again. I do like that. I thought you would. Yeah. <laughs> it's very eerie. It is very eerie. But yeah, just I like the the reference. Nice. Yeah, I like that. That just reminds me that you know the guy Adrian Bliss who I really like on TikTok who does like weird skits and he has like loads of like weird costumes. Yes. He just did one about like being a soldier inside the horse <laughs> and it's got oh who's the king that that is inside Troy 
can't remember his name. But anyway, like the guy who's accepting the the Trojan horse mm. is like, oh wow, what a beautiful gift. That's so nice. Like, cause all this destruction happened, and I'm so sad. And like, oh, but like this lovely gift, and it's just the guy inside the horse being like, like holding a knife, and like, oh. <laughs> I do. Do you like how I waited for you to ask me this thing? <laughs> yeah. Only took ten episodes. <laughs> Honestly, I don't I might have shared this word before, but I'm sharing it again in okay. order of Vivian. Um these are two of my favourite words for female dandy. One is dandizette, which is just delicious to say. Yes. And the other is Quintrell. Oh. Which is delicious to write. So interestingly, these are both given a French ending. But the word dandy, which means a man who's overly fine in his appearance, mm-hmm. is a Scottish word. It started oh, that out. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it started out as a shortened version of the name Andrew, which just means manly or masculine. Mm. So Andrew goes to Andy, and the descriptor is dandy. Dandy. Nice. But then, randomly, when it's a woman, it gets French. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Like it's not a French word. <laughs> we just went. Quite like that. I, sometimes I have no etymological basis for this, but I'm like, is that because of Mary Queen of Scots? Because she I was mean, French, and be. and she was very much a, a dandizit. Mm-hmm. But we'll never know. <laughs> so that's my that's my route. Yeah, I don't think you shared that before because I don't think I knew that. Okay, so. maybe I just wrote a poem or something about it. I've definitely done something with that word before because yeah. Queen Trail is a pretty word. Mm. But nice. Yeah, enjoy. <laughs> Do you have an insight for us? Yes, so I was thinking about fairy tale beginnings and endings. Okay. Partly because of Spin and Silver and partly because of another book I read recently, which I'll be covering next season. Dun dun dun. And I was thinking about that phrase, once upon a time. Okay. And how that's like something that's pretty consistent throughout all fairy tales. There are slight variations, but they do typically include the word once or infer that the story comes from long ago. Um, and I mean like from country to country, like mm. it kind of all is the same. But I did look up the beginnings of fairy tales from around the world to see if there were any different ones, and I found a couple that I liked and thought I would share. So apparently one of the Czech beginnings is beyond seven mountain ranges, beyond seven rivers, which I love. Oh. Because it just sounds very magical. It does, and also like the Czech Republic is very inland, mm-hmm. so that makes sense. Yeah, and similarly in Lithuanian, it's beyond nine seas, beyond nine lagoons. Oh, beyond nine lagoons! Oh, no. That's tasty. Yeah, in Persian, they begin someday, sometime, which I also like. Uh-huh. But yeah, but, but when I was looking at these, I also found loads of fairy tale endings. Um, and again, a lot of these are quite similar and follow the like happily ever after idea. But I wanted to share a few of my favourite variations. So to go back to Persian, they apparently end. This book has come to end, the story yet remains. Mmm. How very the fault on our stars of them. I know. In Armenian, it's quite different. It goes, three apples fall from the sky, one for the writer, one for the storyteller, one for the listener. Oh, that's cute. I like that. That's cute. In Czech, again, one of the variations is a bell rang and the tale comes to its end. Oh, that's quite haunting. Mm. In one of the Dutch variations, 
which is wonderful, <laughs> is and then came an elephant with a very long snout and it blew the story out. Why is Dutch <laughs> always wild? I love that. I liked this one in modern Greek where the ending is and they lived well and we lived better. <laughs> Greece. I know. And my final one, which I think might be my favourite, although I like them all, is This is the End. Run away with it. Oh! How good is that? Where's that from? Hungary. That's so good. Mm-hmm. I feel, I like the idea that the story like lives on because other people yeah. like, run away with it. I also it. like that it's got like a joke. Oh, see, now I've got, now there's a poem in my head because yeah. I want to say like it's a romance and you run away with mm, the ending. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> so there you go. Some Once Upon a Times and Happily Ever Afters that you might have not heard of before. How do you come up with such varied content every week, man? I, just, I don't know. That took a while. <laughs> <laughs> I just pick a word and I'm like, let's see where that came from. But that's the thing, like, I could do that, but then I, like, I don't want to steal your thing. So I often have to, like, find some bizarre. I love that I started off with you, like, doing horoscope shit. And now you're just, like, deep into fairy tale research. And I'm just like, what random facts can I find? (laughs) We love it. Yeah. We love it. But I think what I might do from now on is do that and try and make it relate to the book. Yeah. Because I feel like that helps me <laughs> try and find an insight. Well, yeah, because then it's um, an insight into something, right? Yeah, exactly. Nice. <laughs> what's our question this week? Our question is, what's your favourite fairy tale? That is a nice question. I feel very off theme this episode. Yeah. Will I go first? Yeah, sure. Sure. So my first one that came to mind is Rapunzel. I don't know why really. I think I just like that it's got like a curse to break. There's like the magic hair. I like that Rapunzel and the prince think that they outsmart the sorceress, but they don't. Mm. Um, And in the original story, the prince falls from the tower and is blinded. Yeah. And Rapunzel's tears cure his blindness, and I like that. <laughs> um, and also it inspired Tangled, which is a film that I love. But another one which I guess is less well-known that I like is The Wild Swans or The Six Swans. So that's the one where an evil stepmother turns her six stepsons into swans, and only the seventh child, the daughter can sew them clothes out of nettles that will turn them back into human but she can't speak for the six years while she's doing that for some reason (laughs) oh i I have so many questions i just like how mad that one is and it's also the inspiration for elizabeth Lim's six crimson cranes which came out this year and that's like that up the other day yeah and that's a book that i'm really keen to read she wrote spin the dawn that I just read and loved. Huh. Um, so yeah, I like I like that as like a wild one. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's pretty insane. Um, cool. My favorite fairy tale when I was growing up, for honestly reasons that I don't know, mm. but I just know that this was the one that was like the one that I always read was the Princess and the Pea. Mm. Yeah, I liked that one as well. I loved the Princess and the Pea. I don't know if it was just that, like my child brain enjoyed like the rhythm of the version that we had because it was like 
they got one mattress and then it wasn't enough and then they got another mattress yeah and, like it was very like goldilocksy in yeah. the way that it was told but i just love the idea of like this this poor girl being so demented <laughs> by this pee that she can't sleep and like i don't know i just think in my little child brain I liked the mischief of the the prince being like, oh, I want her to be delicate enough to be able to feel it. Yeah. But then she's actually demented, and she's like, <laughs> oh my god, you need to stop. Yeah. But he doesn't, and I'm like, what bastard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think it's funny. And also, I I really like a vivid thing for me is the bit at the start where she like shows up and she's all bedraggled and dishevelled. Yeah, and, and she just wants a bed. And she just she? wants a bed, yeah. and that's all she wants. Yes. <laughs> um. So yeah, I love that one. And then my other one that I used to read quite a lot that I can't remember that many details of, but I know that it was like, I have a big book of the Brothers Grimm and I used to read it, mm-hmm. was The Snow Queen, yeah. um, which obviously inspired Frozen, but the Grimm version is much more grim. Yeah. Is that the one where like someone gets like a shard of ice in their eye? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why my small self was obsessed with reading that before I went to bed, but you know. We move. <laughs> so that is us. Woohoo! That's the end of season three. We made um, it. Before I do my spiel, let's just talk about when we'll be back. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we're going to take a slightly longer season break than usual. Yeah, we have some shit to do. We have some big life stuff <laughs> in January, <laughs> which is the month we would be doing the bulk of recording if we stuck to the same schedule so instead we're going to come back in march i believe it's march 4th i could be wrong but i'll put it in the show notes the exact date which sounds like a long time but it won't be it's fine it honestly won't be because it's going to be christmas and then it's going to be like that new year hangover period where no one cares about anything then it's going to be valentine's day and we just be griping about how we're (laughs) single you don't want to hear that so by the time that march comes you'll just be buzzing to hear from us again exactly and that just means that we can like dedicate the amount of time that we want to on it exactly and stuff like that and it'll be good however before that you will have our christmas slash end of the year slash wrap up whatever we want to call it wow your shit slogans mate Um, (laughs) (laughs) she's riffing (laughs) so yeah that comes out on christmas eve only two weeks from now so you don't have long to wait for that we're going to round up all our favorites of the year just like we did last year and we're going to open our Christmas presents it's as well. It's going to be cute. So yeah, that'll be fun. So yeah, that'll be in a couple of weeks and then season four will be at the start of March. Exactly. So this is not goodbye. It is merely see you later. <laughs> so yeah, if you have any comments or questions, our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything we talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has other music we mention. And please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there season three baby that's a wrap (laughs) bye bye